love is not any one feeling. Love is labor. When you labor for someone, when you care for them, when you do this grief work with them, for example, the emotions are come and go. There's a range of emotions. Um, grief comes and goes, rage comes and goes. Sometimes you'll feel nothing at all. And all those emotions, letting them come and go is what makes you resilient. It's been a year since the pandemic hit, and we're all trying to make sense of life as much as we can right now, myself included. With this in mind, over the next four episodes, we will be talking about the lessons we've learned after this year of quarantine, sharing insights and wisdom from our guests of the Next Right Step program that have helped many of us move through the last 12 months through their platforms and work. key pillar in the Roots of Resilience, my framework around uh, the ways that we build resiliency and stay well in our lives. There's six roots, and one of them is connection to our identity and the impact we want to make in the world. And when I think of moments where I felt deeply connected to my identity, to who I am, to how I am meant to show up in the world, there's a very clear memory that I have. Back in 2016, I was sitting in a theater in Brooklyn, and on stage was this powerhouse woman with long black hair like mine and brown skin like the earth like mine. And she was sharing stories of a woman in my lineage, my Bago, and she was sharing words in Gurmukhi and Punjabi on stage. And I felt so seen in this audience of many white folks where I had never felt seen before. Seeing Valerie Kaur take that stage and seeing her embody herself and her identity so fully in a place where I hadn't seen that before. This was five years ago after working in a space of white feminism for so long. It changed something inside of me. It helped me know that connecting to my lineage, to my roots, to my heritage would make me even more powerful, would make me rooted in myself so much more. It would give me the fuel, the ability to persevere that much more. I saw Valerie on stage a few months before I would become sick. I would get diagnosed with a neurological illness. I would have to leave my life in Brooklyn and come back to this countryside just outside of Ottawa. But it planted a seed for me. And that period of transition and seeing Valerie that day became an opportunity for me and a memory for me to remind myself of what it felt like to see someone in the power of their identity, their calling and their purpose. And so when we were figuring out who we should have speak to the Next Right Step cohort last summer when it came to identity, Valerie was a no-brainer. It also helped that I got to support her and assist her in bringing her TED Talk to life, which I shared a little bit about in our episode with Lovey last week, and something that Valerie refers to in today's episode. I got to see firsthand how she crafts such eloquent and powerful speeches. I got to get a sense of who her influences were. I got to better understand what it can look like to fully embody excellence on stage and in our work every day. It feels surreal to consider that from that moment in 2016 to now sharing my interview with Valerie with all of y'all 
how much change has happened both for me personally and both for Valerie and her work and her impact. Um, but I'm so grateful that I get to share her story and her work with all of you here today to hopefully help you root even more deeply into your identity and the impact you want to make. Valerie is a civil rights attorney, a sick activist, and the author of See No Stranger, a book that has had an immense impact on my life and my heart. <laughs> we hit on so many different things during this conversation, and I think the original conversation was something like 90 minutes, but we've brought some of the most powerful pieces of it here together for you today. So in this conversation, we talk about how there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We talk about how love is a verb and requires labor and care and that love can include rage. And we also talk about how connecting to our ancestry and for Valerie and our sick ancestry can help us amplify and be rooted so much more. Your identity is so rooted in our faith. And what was it like for you to own that and embody who you are in terms of this identity as a sick activist in your life? Oh, it was like coming home. <laughs> it was like coming home to be at home in my body is to be at home in the world. And I feel like, when, you know, we, we named the book, we called the books, you know, Stranger. It was actually Michelle Alexander who said, no, you can't call it revolutionary love. You have to call it, you know, stranger <laughs> because it's not just seeing others as a part of you, you do not yet know, but it's, it's seeing yourself as, as beloved in a world that wants to make you strange to yourself. Mm. Um, as a little girl growing up in the farmlands of California, predominantly white, predominantly Christian, I felt like I was always contorting myself to try to fit in, to try to belong. And I'm third generation. So my grandfather arrived from India in California 107 years ago in a few weeks, wow. 107 years. And so I grew up in a time when, you know, I didn't fully belong to the sick, to the mostly migrant immigrant sick community. My first name is Valerie. I was born on Valentine's Day. <laughs> not, not a very sick name. And I also didn't, I clearly didn't belong with my mostly white Christian friends at school. So there was this in-betweenness and this strangeness. And I was a problem that I couldn't solve as my teachers and my friends tried to convert me. And then on the other side, they, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be as um, Punjabi or sick that they wanted me to be. And I hated being in-between. I hated being strange to myself. My skin would crawl and I would feel like, and it was always my, my grandfather, my Papaji, who would scoop me up when I came home, you know, in tears after the latest racial slur. I remember one time it was Black Dog. And he would give me the Shabbats, the prayers from our faith. The hot winds cannot touch you. My love, the hot winds cannot touch you. You are brave. And he would tell me the story of my Bago. And the story of my Pago is the story of the first sick woman warrior. The story goes, in the year 1705, there were 40 soldiers who abandoned their post in a great battle that was going to determine the, the outcome of this um, resistance against empire. And these 40 soldiers were just afraid, and they abandoned the, 
guru. They returned to their village fleeing. And this village woman turned to them and said, you will not abandon the fight. <laughs> you will return to the fire and I will lead you. <laughs> she, she donned a turban. She mounted a horse with a sword in her hand and fire in her eyes. She led them where no one else would. She became the one she was waiting for. And my grandfather would say, Veta, don't abandon your post. Don't abandon your post. So here I'm like a little girl in two long black braids. <laughs> I like to ride tractors and like look at the like farmland, right? And I looked up at my grandfather and I just nodded. Yes, Papaji, I won't abandon my post. <laughs> and in all the years since then, como, in all the years since then, I, I, I realized that it's been this lifelong and all the moments I've wanted to give up, it's just this vow that I've made to my grandfather not to abandon my post. And, and the truth is, like, I, I always wanted to be the warrior in the story, but, but I'm the deserter, too. I mean, even now, Jacob Blake, pandemic, fires here in California. It is hard. I have two little, little babies downstairs. My husband's waiting <laughs> to come down and give them dinner after we're done. Like, we, it's hard labor. It's hard to fight for justice when it's not political. It's personal, too. It's so hard. You want to give up again and again and again, I want to desert my post. And it's this wise woman in me, this woman warrior in me who takes my hand and says, it's okay, love, and just leads me back to the battlefield of the world again and again and again. And I think that's the point, isn't it? To be faithful to the labor we may not see we may not live to see the fruits of of what we do but if we are faithful to the labor and if we labor for justice with with bravery and with joy isn't that the meaning of life being told as such a young human to not abandon your post i can only imagine how that landed on those youthful ears of valerie's at that time but the essence of that calling that her papaji gave her. It reminds me so much of the courage that my mother embodied for me and reminded me of throughout my life as a young person and now as an adult, reminding me of what we're capable of overcoming, what our faith tells us is possible, what we know we are capable of as individuals. Now, with our relationship to faith and identity, there can be a lot of different things thrust upon us. Different parts of our identities can be not chosen by us. The titles that we wear, the way people see us, um, we can almost feel like it wasn't our choice to have certain titles thrust upon us. When you consider your identities, how have you go gone about get, how have you gone about moving through and letting go of the identities that have perhaps been thrust upon you? the not enoughness, the not brown enough, the survivor or the victim. How have you gone through that process of unlearning certain identities and then rooting into the identities that you want in your life moving forward, that you want to actually define you as you move forward? It's a kind of violence, isn't it? Mm. Uh, when people tell you who you are, and especially if you're small and brown and female, you are constantly being bombarded with messages that you are not 
beautiful enough or smart enough or strong enough um, or white enough or fair enough or enough. And it becomes a voice in your own head. That's the violence that's done. It's, it's violence on the soul because for so many years, and, and, and I don't know, Como, if, you know, if you remember us talking about this around the TED Talk, like when you were with me, like it was, you know, it's the moment the talk is done that the, that voice of like, you missed that line or you were too emotional or you were da da da. And I began to call this voice the little critic. I felt like my entire life was this power struggle between the little critic in me that had been fed by with all the messages from the world and the wise woman in me, the woman warrior in me who knew that I was brave enough. The power projected into me by my grandfather and then found within me, right? And so I said, you know what? It's my birthday. I am going to destroy the little critic. I'm going to splash him <laughs> into pieces. And the, and the wise woman in me was like, okay, love. <laughs> This little guy is actually a part of you. Mm. We need him. We just don't need him in charge. Mm. And I realized that the little critic, all this time, he was trying to protect me. Like, it's hard. It's like, he was right. Like, to be, to be loud in this body with your truth and your stories is a dangerous thing in this world. Mm. Or you can lose yourself. You can lose your life in this world. And so I had to say, um, the ceremony that we created, that you helped us create from afar, was... Um, and you'll get to this in the final chapter of the book too. I describe it. We had to release the little critic. We had to thank, thank the little critic for his years of service and say, we don't need you anymore <laughs> to be on the throne. That's, that's really how I have come to love myself. All those other labels just suddenly fall away because they're not, not in my own head. It doesn't matter what people thrust upon me. If I'm coming forward and I'm speaking in my wholeness and my in all of my body, if I'm in living in all of my body, not trying to chop myself into pieces and show you just this piece because that's the only thing that's legible to you. No, like I begin my speeches like that, even though it is illegible to so many, because <laughs> this is what it takes for me to inhabit my entire body and my soul. And so I think that kind of being in the world is possible for all of us. And how do you encourage folks or, or what advice do you have for people to, to fully embody, to fully world, root into those identities, who the they world, are? Right, right. The world won't give it to you. You can't wait around for a, a time or a place where you're going to be safe enough to be fully who you are. You have to create that space for yourself around you. Mm -hmm. I'm really fortunate that our home, it right now feels like a pocket. I call it a pocket of revolutionary love. <laughs> like we're all committed to meeting each other's needs and allowing ourselves to show up fully in our wholeness. That's easier in your own private space. But what about institutions of power? And that's been harder for me. Law school was hard. <laughs> Ivy Leagues were hard. Nonprofit spaces, even progressive spaces were hard. I, I finally came to the place where I created a revolutionary love project because when I was with the lawyers in the civil rights world I was like okay you're all strategy but you're no heart mm -hmm. where are you grounded in the, in the practice of love or are you just repeating the adversarial framework that you've been given and then on the faith side the interfaith world I was like okay this is really lovely but 
where is the teeth? Where is your sword? Where are you? Do you know what we're up against? We can't just thoughts of, no, we have to fight. We have to march with our feet. Like, how do we bring love and revolution together? Mm. And that was, um, that was when I launched the Revolutionary Love Project four years ago. In a way, it was just to, to be able to hear myself more clearly, more fully. Mm. And I, in the last four years, what I've been so heartened by is that so many other people are now also seeing this need to bring these two worlds together, to create a new way, a new way that is personal, that is political, that is revolutionary, but rooted in love, that allows all of us to show up with our, with our whole selves, our full selves. After a short break, we'll be back with Valerie Kaur. The sponsor for today's episode is me. <laughs> So I'm going to share with you a little bit about a program we're releasing very soon. In fact, it's the Next Right Step program where this conversation with Valerie happened last summer. So if you love the type of conversation that you heard today, and if you're looking to dive more deeply into yourself, your relationship with your identity and impact, your relationship to work, how you can build up your wellness routines and plans for yourself, and how you can plan your tactical next right steps in life and work, then the next right step is for you. And lucky for you, I'm going to be delivering some free masterclasses in a few weeks time where you can join me live and I will share with you the overview of the Roots of Resilience so you can walk away with a micro plan for your life and work and decide if the next right step, my eight-week signature program, is right for you. So stay tuned for more details and I really hope I'll see you in class. I'm Komal and this is Lessons Learned. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with you with Valerie Kaur, civil rights attorney, activist, educator, and leader of the Revolutionary Love Project with the goal of reclaiming love as a force for justice. Now, when it comes to building community, finding people we're aligned with can be a really difficult thing, or people who are mission-driven just like we are, people we can trust, people who will matter in our lives one day. And it can be intimidating to do the outreach, to get to know those humans, to find them, to connect with them, to be vulnerable enough to let them into your heart. Valerie was someone who I admired so much as I shared at the top of the episode, but also who became incredible community for me and who showed me also what vulnerability and building community really looks like. Anytime I have, a, I have found my people, has it, it's come from moments when I was brave enough to like show a little bit of who I fully was. Ooh, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so that's it, right? It's always you having, finding enough bravery to let that wise woman in you say, okay, say the thing now, say it now. And then, and then the people find you and then you listen, you listen too. It's like, oh, she said the thing. That's the thing I was thinking that I didn't think I could say. Mm. <laughs> and you find her, you know, and you create, you create, create, because the truth is these institutions on this continent, they were not made for us. Mm -hmm. They were not at their founding and in all the years since, they were never designed to let someone like you and me, Gomo, walk through them and wield any kind of influence. Mm -hmm. Maybe we were guests later, but certainly we weren't, we weren't, you know, it was, it was unimaginable that we would lead them, that we would change them with our own points of view. So once you understand that there's nothing wrong with you, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with you. It's the institution that wants to make you strange to yourself. Mm -hmm. Then you're like, oh, well, I'm not going to let that happen to me. Mm -hmm. 
you know, let, let me create this around me. Let, let me invite other people in. And then I think that, you know, in this revolutionary moment that we are in, in, in the United States, really around the world, that there is not one institution on the face of this, this continent that doesn't need us to transition it into being truly anti-racist. Mm-hmm. It's not just policing and criminal justice and public safety. No, it's like, it's your, it's your house of worship. It's your, it's your, um, it's your industry. It's your workplace. It's your kid's school. Every single one of them. How have you in, how have you yourself separated or found that solace between someone else's grief and your own? Because as we show up for people in our lives, it can be so difficult to navigate that line between what's someone else's and what's ours. And I'm so curious about this because when it can be all consuming in that way, the boundary is completely blurred. Yeah. What is that like for you? Oh, in the beginning, I was miserable at it. <laughs> in the beginning, you know, I, I was 20 years old when Bobir Singh Sodhi was killed, the first person killed in a hate crime after 9-11 and all the hate violence that broke out across this country. And, I, and we didn't have social media. We didn't have any way to tell our stories. But I, I was a college kid. I got in my car and I went from city to city, Gurdwara to Gurdwara, just sitting with my dinky little camera trying to capture people's stories. And I always thought, like, I'm the journalist. I had, like, a, like a London fog knockoff coat, you know, that my mom got me. It's like, I'm going to listen. <laughs> and then it would just be a few minutes. Like, the, the, the aunties and uncles, though, were calling us beta because we're we're, we're part of community. Like it was an illusion. Like, just so that for those who are listening, beta means child or like <laughs> beloved child. <laughs> so when they began to cry, I would begin to cry. And their grief, like my, my heart was so porous that that grief just flooded, flooded me. And it took, um, and it would enter my nightmares. It would enter to my dreams. It took me, and I thought that's what was required. I thought that was the emotional labor that was required to have so much empathy that you would lose yourself in another person's story, that that's what it would take. And I really very quickly learned that if that's the approach, you will not last. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> that, that is um, exactly how we break down, how we opt out, how we, and it's because I, I confuse love with empathy and empathy with feeling. And it took me some time to learn that no love, love is not any one feeling. Love is labor. When you labor for someone, when you care for them, when you do this grief work with them, for example, the emotions are come and go. There's a range of emotions. Um, grief comes and goes, rage comes and goes. Sometimes you'll feel nothing at all. And all those emotions, letting them come and go is what makes you resilient. And just because I'm sitting with someone's story and I feel very little, it doesn't mean that I'm not practicing the ethic of love. It means this is not the moment for me to um, show up with empathy. Mm-hmm. Like it can be more cognitive than emotional. So I, I, have, I have learned over the course of years that um, to think about, and I write about this in the book, that listening to someone's story, especially a story of pain, is more like a circle. That oftentimes we just think of it as this one directional, let me get subsumed in your story. But in fact, it's about drawing close and withdrawing, like listening and then coming back to yourself. And it's very embodied. I've learned how to pay close attention to sensations in my body, 
What, where, when is my heart beating? What, what, what are my palms sweating? What's, what's rising in me? And once I can pay attention to what's happening to me, that I can create some distance between um, what's hap- my observations about what this is doing to me and then what they need. Mm. <laughs> Sometimes what I need may not be what they need. I may need to cry. They may not need to cry. They may need me to ask them the next question, <laughs> right? To practice wonder. And so this is why in the book, I talk about wonder as the wellspring for love, that the act of wondering about another, continuing this, this orientation of humility and openness and curiosity, that that is right relationship, that that is the foundation for the ethic of love, for to, to practice, to practice love. When Valerie shared that difference between empathy and love, that you can love someone and love how we're engaging in a process and love deeply the person we're in front of, but that we don't always need to tap into the empathy, that there are moments where we need to stick to our cognition and the questions and what is happening in that moment, but the baseline of love still exists, was so powerful. And it made me also wonder, wonder being the operative word, it made me wonder about wondering about ourselves. How do we apply that lens of curiosity and wonder to our own experiences? How do we empathize with ourselves when we have gone through difficult things and are finding ways to reconcile with what happened to us? And how do we cultivate the moments where cognition and the cognitive part of our brains and the analytical part of ourselves needs to come and be present for us to fully process through what happened? Valerie shares a little bit about her experience with reconciliation and forgiveness when it came to an extended family member who had sexually assaulted her at a young age. She refers to him as Roshan in the book and also in our conversation here today. This is what Valerie had to share about her experience with forgiveness and reconciliation. Here's the thing. Forgiveness is, just happens with you. You can free yourself. Reconciliation requires the other person. Mm. And I, had, I, had, I was free. And then, and then you'll, you can read about it in the book. We decided, this relative and I, Roshan and I, decided to, like, to try to reconcile too. And what I learned was that just as forgiveness didn't require him being any part of it, his healing, his process of accountability, of owning what he did, of standing the heat of his own guilt and his own shame and everything that he had done, that didn't require my forgiveness. He could do that on his own. And he did the work. He did the work. So we both had done the work to get to the point where, all right, let's sit together now and let's reconcile the stories of what happened to us. And if there's anything incomplete, let us complete it now and let us restore. And there's no returning, but let us create something new, create our family anew. So much, even on the way to forgiveness, there's so much grief that has to be processed, so much rage. I had to untap my own rage. I talk a lot about that in chapter four, like learning that processing one's rage is connecting to the ability to fight for oneself and therefore love oneself. And I had to go through all of that before I could even begin to free myself of the, the animosity I had towards him and forgive him. And that rage is actually something that is so important for me in my own experience, because the rage is what allowed space to open up in my life again. Because when I was suppressing the rage, the anger, the, tr- the frustration, the pain that caused that anger, because we're often made to believe that it- 
if we express anger, there's something wrong. I 100% don't believe that anymore. And when the rage comes up, it needs to be expressed healthily instead of suppressed and explode. But that, ex that expression of the rage opens up space for me to be more of who I am. And so when we're thinking of identity and this, this conversation around rage, I rage around the reasons why my identity hasn't been enough, why my identity has been suppressed for so long, why different parts of myself aren't accepted in spaces where I feel so oppressed so often. So how do you now channel that rage how, when it arises? How do you process and use that rage to deepen even more into who you are and your identity? So oxytocin is called a love hormone. The more oxytocin in the body, the more care and nurturing mammals show for their babies. Oxytocin decreases aggression in a mother's body overall, with one exception, in defense of her young. When babies are threatened, oxytocin actually increases aggression. Rage is a part of love. It is the biological force that protects that which is loved. When I finally broke my silence around my sexual assault, it was my mother who stood up and allowed me to do it. She had rage roaring inside of her, and I didn't know that she had. She couldn't access it for herself for so many years, but he could, she could access it for me, and she was teaching me to do the same. And so I think of it now as a sort of dance that we release our raw reactionary rage in safe containers and then decide how to harness that energy for our creative work in the world. And every day I am doing this dance. <laughs> and what hel helps me is remembering that this, this kind of rage is divine. Just thinking about the Hindu tradition, you know, the goddess Kali, right? The fiercest form of the goddess Durga. She is clad in tiger skin. She's wearing a garland of skulls. Her mouth is agape. Her tongue is rolling out as she drinks the blood of life. Kali is beloved as the divine mother. And here she is, right? Her rage is fierce, it's disciplined, and it's visionary. The aim of divine rage is not vengeance, but to reorder the world. Mm. Black feminist thinkers have long taught us about this too, right? Audre Lorde, anger is loaded with information and energy. Every woman has a well-stocked arsenal of anger, potentially useful against those oppressions, personal and institutional, which brought that anger into being. Here again, focused with precision, like, like from the forehead of the goddess, right? It can become a powerful source of energy serving progress and change. So it becomes a dance for me every day to release raw rage in a safe container in order to send divine rage into the world, like focused fury. The way of the warrior sage <laughs> is not only loving kindness, but loving re revolution or revolutionary love. It's not something I talk about often, but rage is a place that I tend to live on occasion these days. Ever since I did get sick in this body and overcome cancer and a neurological illness and move through my experiences with gaslighting, and emotional manipulation. Rage has been present. How can it not be? How can I not honor Gali within me? How can I not honor the rage that is embodied in this body? I realize that for me, sitting with, accepting, 
and honoring that rage was the ultimate form of loving kindness to myself. Not suppressing those emotions, not repressing the truths of the pain, the frustration, and the anger that I felt, but rather holding it and asking, what is this rage here to do? What is it here to tell me? How can it be channeled into something more than this moment and more than what happened to me? Rage has transformed into boundaries for me. Rage has transformed into purpose. Rage has enabled me to love myself so much better. And sharing my rage, whether it comes to social injustice, injustice that I've faced, struggles that I go to, rage that I feel towards myself or to happenings in the world, it's also brought me closer to my community, brought me closer to the people who I know will always be there for me, the people who are willing to see me when I'm at my worst, when I'm at my most fiery, the ones who are willing to hold me through it all. Community is such a critical pillar in all parts of our well-being and mental health and resiliency. Community is the through line for allowing us to truly be who we are, to connect to ourselves, and to lean into the truth of loving kindness. So let yourself feel your rage. Let yourself find ways to emote it healthily. Find ways to connect to your people to support you through the expression of it. To truly lean into the loving kindness that you want to embody towards yourself and to others. And I want to leave you with some final words of wisdom from Valerie. The three things that allow her to unleash in her life. No labor is done alone. So the three things that are keeping me lasting right now is the wise woman practice, which we talked about, summoning that wise woman inside of you. The second is summoning my ancestors. And so these days I'm summoning Papaji a lot. I'm summoning my Pago. I'm, I'm summoning John Lewis now, our latest ancestor, right? So I'm summoning the people who are my moral compass and imagining what they would say because they are saying it to me when I imagine them saying it to me. So ancestors behind us, wise woman within us, and then my sisters next to me. And that's what you've all created here. You can be midwives to each other, helping each other breathe and push and then breathe again. Lessons Learned is produced by Rhaenyra Naidu and me, Gomal Minhas, with support from Daniela Ochoa. Our editor is Madison Foran. If you heard something that really resonated with you, then please leave a review over at Apple Podcasts. You can find all the episodes and other goods over at gomal.com. Until next time, I'm Gomal, and this is Lessons Learned.